Fairy lights for fairy nights. It's time for your bedtime story. Brought to you by me, the Suze. Also brought to you by me, Zelda. Put your PJs on and sit down for a soothing bedtime story. It's not just the devil in the details. What else is lurking? Fairy lights for fairy nights. Well, hello. Hello. Today, the 21st, the 22nd of April, we bring you the 31st episode, the 31st episode of Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights. Fun times, good times, exciting times. Happy Earth All Day. All the times. Oh, yeah, and it's Earth Day. Yeah. And yesterday, it snowed. In Cleveland. Does it make any sense? No. Snowed no, the last two days in Cleveland. We got a probably about five inches of snow in total. Why? Why? But that's Ow. okay. We're going to roll with it. I'm going to roll with it. And uh, Ow, like it a all lamb. melted. Yeah. In like a lamb. Rawr. like a lion. Rawr. Rawr. So, yeah. It's been... We do still have Zelda out on the campaign trail. So, as a guest host, we have here Kenny Pick from It Came From Cleveland. Yes. It Came From Cleveland, yeah. So, that's on Fridays. 7 and, to 10 uh, p.m. Eastern, right here on Radio for Humans. Mm-hmm. And, and you're bringing up a wide variety of yeah. fun, can exciting opening. happiness. And I'm opening a can. I thought oh. that was natural. Yeah, it's, it's natural. Um yeah, but you know, actually, fun fun little fact about Earth Day is one of its founders. It was the late uh, Eddie Albert, American hero Eddie Albert, which, of course, everybody knows from Green Acres. That we'll learn a lot more about tomorrow. And it came from Cleveland, and we can't wait Ooh. to bring it to you. And it, but yeah, Earth Day was on Eddie Albert's birthday, and he had a, a hand in uh, founding Earth Day. So uh, he was a hell of a guy. Earth Day. Yep, it's, it's, um, we try to do what we can for Earth Day, for Mother Earth. We dig when we can, we grow flowers for the bees. We compost a little bit. Uh, what, what else can you do? What else can you do? Try to keep your, uh, we play the green news report. We try to do what the fairies would like us to do, mm -hmm. right? Fairies are pretty dang green. They they would like that. Yeah. But try to please them. Yeah. What else can we do? I don't know. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I called somebody a shithead for throwing a piece of litter on the ground today. Yeah, you did. I yeah. said, pick that up, shithead. Yeah. Oh, Parma. We <laughs> were driving about in Parma. People just drop things. Yeah, People we just throw things out of their car and well, you yeah, know. we uh, we went to Rudy's Strudel and uh, got all all the carbs. So good. <laughs> some pierogies. All the pierogies. Uh, some pierogies. A uh, a uh, kuchen, I think, is what it's called. I can't remember what it's called. It's like a giant Danish. And um and uh, got some oatmeal cookies that were quite delicious, with chocolate yeah. chips and cranberries and raisins. And, and you um, made them feel good because you just bought stuff because it smelled good in there, right? Yeah, because I was like, I walked in and I was like, mmm, what smells delicious and cheesy? 
And the woman mm-hmm. said, oh, they're mixing cheddar and potato in the back uh, for the pierogi filling. And I was like, whoa, okay, well, there's the, I was like, if that's what I want for dinner now. And yeah. I got you, I got you some um, chicken paprikash soup. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to make some rice for that. That's a bit, smelled very Paprikashi? Paprikashi. Yeah, I just, I just watched a big. Oh my gosh, my paprikash. Show on YouTube about what, what, um, paprikash and what, uh, uh, paprika is made out of. It's just peppers. Mm-hmm. It's just dried peppers. Gosh. Well, you delicious. know what? You, you know the what? Cutest things. The Italian word for pepper is, don't you? Paprikash. I don't paprika. know. Paprika. Oh, paprika. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's Italian for my. That I was taught that by my uh, uh, step grandfather, Constante Grossi, who served honorably in mm. World War Two. Mm. Um and uh, yeah. Uh, he was like, you know, he's a, he said, paprika is is Italian for pepper. And I said, I'll remember that, dear great-grandfather. <laughs> and I uh, The older generation teaches us. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it was, it was quite, you know, quite a delightful trip. I found uh, found some new Migos at Target. Uh, I'll file that under special interest for all you people who don't really care about my toy collecting. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so, uh, but, and, and we're loaded for bear. I, I actually went through and hand-selected a whole bunch of fairy tales the other day for, uh, for mm-hmm. Suze for when Michelle was on, and she didn't get to use a lot of them, so we got some leftovers of that. As promised, uh, I do want to listen to Robin Hood later. Yeah. And you... Well, we've got a couple, um, we've got a couple, um, Robin Hood er- era kind of things, but I do want to hear... This one, because it's been in the queue for a while, and it's called The Boy Who Was Named Trouble. It's a Welsh, um, yeah. yeah. I sure hope it's it's loud enough, but... Um, I uh, hope so, too. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, shall we just fire it off? Uh, I'm assuming this one is about, uh, well, he's named Trouble because he gets in trouble. Yeah, and, it was and- from the beginning of uh, March, and uh, I'm hoping it kind of has... The feel or influence of all the 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 books that I'm reading, uh, called "The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making," mm-hmm. but who knows? Who knows? I want to know if it influences that. Yeah, and uh, we'll see. Wonder if this 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 uh, fellow learned a lesson along the way. <laughs> okay. Uh, ooh, sorry. Um, transition music. I'm supposed to do that too. <laughs> Transition. Chapter number five of Welsh Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Welsh Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths. Chapter five The Boy That Was Named Trouble. In one of the many coeds, or places with this name, in ancient and forest-covered Wales, there was a man who had one of the most beautiful mares in all the world. Yet great misfortunes befell both this coed mare and her owner. Every night on the first of May, the mare gave birth to a pretty little colt. Yet no one ever saw, or could ever tell what became of anyone, or all of the colts, 
each and all, and one by one, they disappeared. Nobody knew where they were, or went, or what had become of them. At last, the owner, who had no children, and loved little horses, determined not to lose another. He girded on his sword, and with his trusty spear, stood guard all night in the stable, to catch the mortal robber, as he supposed he must be. When on the same night of the first of May, the mare foaled again, and the colt stood up on its long legs, the man greatly admired the young creature. It looked already as if it could, with its own legs, run away and escape from any wolf that should chase it, hoping to eat it up. But at this moment a great noise was heard outside the stable. The next moment a long arm, with a claw at the end of it, was poked through the window hole to seize the colt. Instantly the man drew his sword, and with one blow, the claw part of the arm was cut off, and it dropped inside with the colt. Hearing a great cry and tumult outside, the owner of the mare rushed forth into the darkness. But though he heard howls of pain, he could see nothing, so he returned. There at the door, he found a baby, with hair as yellow as gold, smiling at him. Besides its swaddling clothes, it was wrapped up in flame-colored satin. As it was still night, the man took the infant to his bed and laid it alongside his wife, who was asleep. Now this good woman loved children, though she had none of her own. And so when she woke up in the morning and saw what was beside her, she was very happy. Then she resolved to pretend that it was her own. So she told her woman that she had borne the child, and they called him Gori of the golden hair. The baby boy grew up fast, and when only two years old, was as strong as most children are at six. Soon he was able to ride the colt that had been born on the May night, and the two were his playmates together. Now it chanced the man heard the tale of Queen Rhiannon, wife of Paul and prince of the Dyfed. She had become the mother of a baby boy, but it was stolen from her at night. The six serving women, whose duty it was to attend the queen and guard her child, were lazy and had neglected their duty. They were asleep when the baby was stolen away. To excuse themselves and be saved from punishment, they invented a lying story. They declared that Rhiannon had devoured the child, her own baby. The wise men of the court believed the story which the six wicked women had told and Rhiannon the queen, though innocent, was condemned to do penance. She was to serve as a porter to carry visitors and their baggage from outdoors into the castle. Every day, for many months, through the hours of daylight, she stood in public disgrace in front of the castle of Narpeth, at the stone block on which riders on horses dismounted from the saddle. When anyone got off at the gate, she had to carry him or her on her back into the hall. As the boy grew up, his foster father scanned his features closely, and it was not long before he made up his mind that Paul was his father and Rhiannon his mother. One day, with the boy riding on his colt, and with two knights keeping him company, the owner of the co-ed mare came into the castle of Narbeth. There they saw beautiful Rhiannon sitting on the horse block at the gate. When they were about to dismount from their horses, the lovely woman spoke to them thus, Chieftains! Go no further thus. I will carry every one of you on my back into the palace. 
Seeing their looks of astonishment, she explained, This is my penance for the charge brought against me of slaying my son and devouring him. One and all the four refused to be carried and went into the castle on their own feet. There Paul, the prince, welcomed them and made a feast in their honor. It being night, Rhiannon sat beside him. After dinner, when the time for storytelling had come, the chief guest told his tale of the mare and the colt, and how he cut the clawed hand, and then found the boy on the doorstep. Then to the joy and surprise of all, the owner of the co-ed mare, putting the golden-haired boy before Rhiannon, cried out, Behold, lady, here is thy son, and whoever they were who told the story and lied about your devouring your own child have done you a grievous wrong. Everyone at the table looked at the boy, and all recognized the lad at once as the child of Paul and Rhiannon. Here ends my trouble, Prideri, cried out Rhiannon. Thereupon one of the chiefs said, Well, hast thou named thy child Trouble, and henceforth Prideri was his name? Soon it was made known, by the vision and the word of the bards and seers, that all the mischief had been wrought by wicked fairies, and that the six serving women had been under their spell, when they lied about the queen. Paul, the castle lord, was so happy that he offered the man of Coed rich gifts of horses, jewels, and dogs. But this good man felt repaid in delivering a pure woman and loving mother from undeserved shame and disgrace, by wisdom and honesty according to common duty. As for Prideri, he was educated as a king's son ought to be, in all gentle arts, and was trained in all manly exercises. After his father died, Prideri became ruler of the realm. He married Kiva, the daughter of a powerful chieftain, who had a pedigree as long as the bridle used to drive a ten-horse chariot. It reached back to Prince Kaznar of Britain. Prideri had many adventures, which are told in the Mabinogian, which is the great storehouse of Welsh hero, wonder, and fairy tales. This recording is in the public domain. Ah, that was a good one. Story of Rihanna. Uh, uh, did I miss entirely? Did I blink and miss a boy named Trouble in there somewhere? Yeah, they um, they named him Trouble because he wound up on the on the doorstep. I guess. Oh. It was quick. It was here, quick. Here comes Trouble. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would be more of a story about. Trained in all the manly arts there by the end. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Mustache but, um, yeah. grooming and whittling. Yeah, well, you know that there's a story about Rihanna. Rihanna. Um, there's there's a song about Rihanna by um, Stevie Fleet, Nicks, right? Fleetwood Mac. Of Fleetwood Mac, yeah. Okay. Well, you she did it song. with Fleetwood Mac. Yes, but you know that song, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Just didn't they? Per sure. Didn't she perform that on um, uh, <laughs> the 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 Coven um, American Horror Story? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably. Yeah. It was a good story. So yeah, it was it was a uh, that that was fun. A little uh, you know, scatter shot for my taste. But you know, it's it's a it's a, it's a folk tale. 
Yeah. That's Welsh. Yeah. It's a good one. Well, but yeah. your your choice next time, huh? That no, that's fine. Choice. No, no, I, I I'm gl- you, you know, again, that's what it's it's a it's a discovery. We're discovering things, you know, on here. So <laughs> you know, there could be that's something true. that's great and there could be something that isn't for everybody. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying, you know, it was, uh, you know, like I said, just a little scattershot. A little scattershot. Sometimes. So, um, uh, but yeah, you know, it, uh, I, I, uh, think it was a fine, fine tale. Um, <laughs> well, I promised everybody we'd listen to Let's Pretend Robin Hood the next time oh. I was on. And I thought we could find out, you know, find out, you know, what, what, uh, how um, uh, they condensed down the story of Robin Hood at 23 minutes and 13 seconds. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there's some slide whistle action. I'm, I'm hoping they use that for a sound effect when Robin Hood shoots arrows. Um, <laughs> here comes my arrow. Uh, <laughs> Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, so yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing if, if, uh, first of all, if Jack Grimes is in this one, who, uh, who's been in the last okay. two Let's Pretends, um, and what role he is, if he's going to be Little John or Friar Tuck, uh, mm-hmm. I think he'd be a good, probably be a good Little John. He kind of has that Brooklyn accent, and I'll be like, hey, you're Robin Hood, over here, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so find out what's going on with Maid Marian and all the rot- stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And, and again, 23 minutes, 23 minutes. And, and uh, you know, that we've got the big competition that's going to have to be in there. Uh, the, the archery comp- competition? The archery competition. Oh, is there an archery competition? Like a William Tell kind of thing? No, isn't uh, the, the, isn't that the big part of the... the um, um, of winning Maid Marion is whoever you know, uh, you know, uh, shoots the best, is the arrow? better, better sharpshooter with a bow and arrow. Hmm. Um, Maybe. It's something along those lines. It's been a long time since I've seen you know, but I know there's some kind of uh, archery contest. And there's um, a contest for the ha- the fa- for the hand of the fair maiden because she can't choose her own. Yeah, she's proper. So they have to do some sort of a random. You know, game like so them. much chattel. Yep. Um, but yeah, so that there's uh, you know, there there could uh, you know, and again, it's twenty three minutes and thirteen seconds. We know they're good at simplifying things, and let's pretend. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm betting since it's twenty three thirteen, then it probably isn't a cream and wheat one. It might have come from the record. We'll find out. But uh, okay. but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where uh, you know, how many different. How many different things, uh, you know, they they gloss over or speed up or uh, whatever. But let's let's shall we catch up with Robin and his merry men? Let's do it. Let's find out what what's happening with Robin Hood and his merry men. Let's pretend. Hello, hello, come on, let's go, it's time for Let's Pretend. The 
It's radio's outstanding children's theater, Let's Pretend, created by Nyla Mack. <laughs> now, to get us started on today's story of Robin Hood, here's Uncle Bill Adams. Hello, pretenders! <laughs> hey, I bet a lot of you won prizes one time or another at school or church or on the playground. You know, winning a prize makes you feel pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you just get ready to feel real good right now, because... Here's news from two prizes that were just awarded to Let's Pretend. And that means you, too, you know, because if we didn't have an audience like you, there wouldn't be any Let's Pretend. So feel good and say thank you to the 500 radio editors of the United States who voted Let's Pretend the best children's program in radio in the annual radio television daily poll. Well, uh, but that's not all. Again this year, Let's Pretend was top children's radio program in the poll conducted by Motion Picture Daily for Fame magazine. Say thanks to these people, too. There. And now, feeling very pleased and proud, let's take off for our brand new story, Robin Hood. Let's go in a hurry by motorcycle. Gwen, take charge, will you? Okay, Uncle Bill. Magical sound men, a fleet of shiny, speedy motorcycles, if you please. One, two, three. And there we are. Okay, everybody, choose yours and hit the leather. First stop, let's pretend in the story of Robin Hood. Let's go! <laughs> Once upon a time, many years ago, there was a great green forest in England known as Sherwood Forest. And deep in the heart of this greenwood lived a band of outlaws and their leader. A stranger, merrier group of outlaws and a stranger, merrier leader never existed before or since. What all my merry men? Come at once, wherever ye may be. Robin Hood would have words with you. Here I am, Robin. What's afoot? And I. Why do you sound the horn, Robin? I, I attend me, all of you. A neighbor has come to us for help. And here he stands beside me. An honest farming man named Gaffer Tandy. You are welcome. Well, well, if you can be helping me, I'll bless the name of Robin Hood and his men forever. It's the same old story, men. The sheriff of Nottingham is after his farm. It seems that a certain nobleman named Sir Humphreys has returned to his castle, and he fancies poor old Gaffer's farm. So now the sheriff, well bribed without a doubt, has come around in the usual way with a bill for back taxes. Uh, truly, gentlemen, I would never know about any such taxes before. I'm a man pays what I owe. Well, of course, you don't need to tell us how the sheriff invents taxes. By the Saints, Robin, when is that sheriff going to get what he deserves? You know as well as I, Alan Adele. He'll only get that when our good King Richard returns from the war. Meantime, the best we can do is keep him from getting too much that uh, he doesn't deserve. <laughs> we'll get that gold you need to keep your farm, Gaffer. That's right. Some sleek swindler of a merchant is bound to be riding through Sherwood today or tomorrow. We'll just uh, invite him to a feast in the clearing and make him pay heartily. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. 
Isn't it about time the sheriff himself came to feast in the Greenwood? By my cudgel, Robin, it would be only justice. But how, Robin? How would you lure him here? Today is market day in Nottingham. Well, but still... Who knows, little John? I'm only thinking there's bound to be some opportunity in such a situation. So, wish me well, lad. No, wait, wait a minute. I'm coming Just a minute, one at a time. What was that, Gaffer? Oh, good master, you can't go into Nottingham. Why, the sheriff wants nothing better than to get his hands now, on you. don't worry, Gaffer. I'll hide my suit of Lincoln green and <laughs> stain my face with walnut dye. He won't know it's Robin Hood. Robin Hood and little John. I'm coming too, Robin. <laughs> you? Oh, but you're such a size and breadth, little John. You're bound to, st- bound to stand out wherever you go, no matter what disguise. I'll wrap a cloak about me, dye my face too. No one will know me, I vow it, Robin. Yeah, but you shouldn't either one of you be a-going. All the sheriff's men are looking for you, Robin Hood. The sheriff himself is <laughs> waiting. The sheriff, the sheriff. Don't worry so about the sheriff, good gaffer. Eleanor Dale. Hi, Robin. You're our troubadour here in the Greenwood. Set Gaffer Tandy's mind at ease with our song. Of course, Robin Hood. Oh, the sheriff came out after Robin Hood once. Came after him with the law. But the bailiff feasted with Robin Hood. And he's one of the merry men now. Oh, the sheriff cries and cries. Yes, the sheriff cries and cries. But you'll never capture Robin Hood until he goes wings and flies. <laughs> All right, come along, little John. Oh, the sheriff came out after Robin Hood's wife came after him with force. But the merry men charged the soldiers all, and the sheriff lost his horse. Oh, the sheriff cries and cries. I don't recognize this, Robin. That fellow in the fruit store there, I've known him for years. He didn't recognize me at all as I went past. Mm, Looks as though we're safe so far. Now, I set myself up as a butcher here in the square. Hmm. That uh, young butcher at the stall yonder. You'll be happy to let you take over for him, I'm thinking. Good, good. Go and amuse yourself as you will at the market, little John. Right. I'm about to go to work. Come now, come now. Who buy my good meat? Three, three prices have I. To fat merchants, bailiffs, and noblemen, I sell thruppings of meat for sixpence. For I want not their trade. Come now, come now. Who buy? Thruppings of good meat for thruppings. When it's a good housewife buying. Are you listening, housewife? Oh, that new butcher. He has a liking for jokes. Sixpence for merchants, thruppings for housewives. But, ah, the pretty young lasses, I charge but a kiss. Oh, I like their custom best of all. (laughs) All right, all right, young man. Since all call me a good housewife, I'll claim thruppings of good meat for thruppings. And here you are, good madam. A fair portion? Not fair portion, indeed. Well, Goody Thomas, you're buying two? Indeed. And this butcher gives a bargain I like. Thruppence of meat, sir. Here you are, and here you are. <laughs> but I say, where are the pretty lasses? Ah, there goes one this moment. Oh, good greeting, pretty maiden. Oh, 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 now wait a bit, butcher. Know you not who she is? I know she's the loveliest maiden I've ever seen. Ah, so, uh, you've come to accept my bargain, lass? I heard you speaking to me, sir. Thruppence of meat for a kiss is my offer. Come, I claim the payment first. Well, really? Of all the incidents. That, that was the sweetest kiss of all my life. I ask your name, fair maiden. Truly, I would ask yours, bold fellow, that I may tell my father how butchers behave now on market day. All right, now. All right. What's 
Well, now, look who's coming, the sheriff himself. Who's this butcher who dares to steal kisses from the highborn lady maid Marion, daughter of Sir Humphreys himself? Humphreys? You're his daughter? You tremble now at your boldness. Tremble? No, not that. So you're Sir Humphreys' daughter. Daughter of a man who cares not whom he cheats of their land. What? Oh, Oh, now I see you for what you really are. An evil-speaking knave full of lies and slander. And my father shall hear of your lies. Goodbye, Maid Marion. Oh, look here now. Look here, fellow. You'll tell me at once who you are. Insulting the fair Maid Marion. Yes, and slipping the whole market by its ears, too, with your crazy prices. Who are you? Who am I, Your Worship? <laughs> you don't know me? No. How should I? Uh, but I will say this. If your face weren't the color of old leather and your clothes are brown instead of Lincoln green, I'd think you were Robin Hood himself. Oh, oh no, sir, no. Oh, think not I'm that wicked, wicked outlaw huh? who takes from the rich to give to the poor and makes fun of the sheriff of Nottingham himself. Oh, no, no. Not well, Robin Hood. Who, then? Who? You're never really a butcher by trade. Very well, then, sheriff. In truth, I am the only son of, of a rich farmer in the next country who... Who died a few months ago, leading all his rich cattle to me? All his rich. Is this the truth? Would I lie to the sheriff of Nottingham? Well, truly, your worship, if my prices were odd here at the market, it is because I know little of business. Really, I'd like nothing better than well than to sell all my horn beasts and be free of cattle. Oh, you would, would you? Oh, rich cattle, you say? And what is your price for them? As senseless as the prices you charge for meat? How about sixty horn beasts for sixty pieces of gold? Really? You'd sell them for that? To you, the sheriff? Yes. Oh, 60 cows for 60 pieces of gold. I'll buy them, sight unseen, and come with you after the market to drive them home. Very good, sheriff. And don't forget the gold. I like not the way we travel to this farm of yours, young man. Oh, really, sheriff? It always seems to me Sherwood Forest is beautiful at this time of evening. Uh, Sherwood Forest shelters that miserable scoundrel Robin Hood, who'd like nothing better than the gold I carry with me for your cattle. Oh, good sheriff, you need have no more fear of Robin Hood than you have of me. Well, that's what you say. But when are we coming to your farm? When will I see those cows I'm oh, buying? Just a minute, sheriff. Rein in your horse. Yes, I think we're about what? to see them now. Now? But we're in the middle of the forest. There. There you are, Sheriff. Sixty head and more. Are you pleased with your bargain? Sixty head? But those, those are deer. <laughs> True enough, Sheriff. As fine deer as ever trod the forest. But you promised sixty horned beasts. And there they are, Sheriff. Sixty deer. Oh, you robber, you swindler. You are no farmer's son. You can't be. Come good, Sheriff. You're first. And now if you ride just a bit further, dinner awaits us in the greenwood. <laughs> Robin Hood. You were Robin Hood all the time. What, what are you going to do to me? Give you a good dinner and send you home again. Minus the gold you had no right to in the first place. Come along, Sheriff. I'll have your head for this, Robin Hood. I'll have all your head. <laughs> Now, before we go on with the second act of Robin Hood, here's Warren Sweeney with a reminder. Yes, pretenders, these gray days in winter are days when it's easy for traffic accidents to happen unless everybody's careful. Rain, snow, or fog makes it hard for drivers to see well, hard for them to stop quickly, too. So do your part. Look carefully both ways 
before crossing a street. And make sure you never cross a street unless it's carefully marked as a crossing. And now, back to our story of Robin Hood and Uncle Bill Adams. Robin Hood and his men have succeeded in tricking the sheriff of Nottingham out of enough gold to save Gaffer Tandy's farm. And all the merry men are resting under the trees this sunny day as Alan and Dale sing. Oh, the sheriff came out after Robin Hood's fright. This time he came to buy. But deer have horns as well as cows. The sheriff thought he'd cry. Oh, now, everyone. Oh, the sheriff cries and cries. Yes, the sheriff cries and cries. But he'll never capture Robin Hood until he goes wings and flies. <laughs> Ah, now who'll fetch me a mug of good brown ale? Swinging thirsty work. Uh, how about you, good Friar Tuck? Well, just a minute, Alan and Dale. One more bite of this tasty. <laughs> Always eating. What a friar you are. All right, I'll get it myself. What's the matter with you, Robin Hood? You sit here with a long face as though we hadn't outfoxed the sheriff with the best joke yet. Just as though he hadn't saved Gaffer's farm for it. Yes, yes, I know, little John. But for the first time in a long time, I'm wishing we didn't have the name of outlaws. Nor have we among decent folk who still remember King Richard. I'm wishing that King Richard had come home and set the country to rights himself. May pardon us as well. Pardon us? What difference would it make? Would you live any differently, Robin? Differently? No, no, of course not. The Greenwood's my home. Forgive me, little John, I... You're still thinking of that maid you kissed at the market. Suddenly you hate the name of outlaw for her sake. No, no, it's And not she that. the daughter of the man who wanted Gaffer's farm. Robin Hood. What? Oh, Robin Hood. Hark, is that a woman's voice? Over there by the edge of the clearing. The things above it, she made Marion. Robin Hood, I had to come. Had to come? But why? Why do you come here to the heart of the Greenwood, my lady? You have a party of men in ambush somewhere. No, no, believe me. I came alone. Alone? All this way through the forest? Why? Just tell us why. I had to warn Robin Hood. I heard my father and the sheriff talking. Oh, my father doesn't realize, Robin. You don't steal for yourself. You don't even steal, really. You know that. I talked to Gaffer Tandy and to others. Oh, lots of others. And I know you wouldn't be an outlaw if it weren't for the sheriff of Nottingham. But now he plans to have you killed, Robin. Nobody's planned that for months. Yes, the sheriff tries and tries. You don't understand. He's hiring someone. Some cutthroat and murderer from from the next country, I think he said. What? Guy of Giesborn. No, even the sheriff wouldn't deal with him. To revenge himself on me? He might, little John. Is it Guy Giesborn? Oh, I don't know. I didn't hear the name. But someone. He's hired someone to kill you, Robin. And you minded enough to come all this long way to warn me. Well, I... Oh, forgive me for thinking that because your father dealt with the sheriff that you... Well, that you were an enemy made, Marion. I... Oh, no, not an enemy, Robin Hood. Never that. But I must return now. I'll go with you to the edge of the forest. But you needn't. It's not necessary. I'd like to. Come. My uh, thanks to the lady, too, for her warning, but I'd remind her, and you, Robin, the Greenwood is no place for a woman. Don't worry when there's no need, little John. Here, we best go down this way, my lady. The path is smoother. Thank you. And you will be careful, Robin Hood. Careful? Oh, Guy Giesborn, whoever the murderer may be. I've forgotten all about him. I was wondering if... No, no, I've no right to say anything now. Maybe... Well, maybe when King Richard comes home and I'm an outlaw no more... Yes? I... Oh, careful, that fallen log. Uh, here, let me take your arm, my lady. Oh, the sheriff tries and tries. Yes, the sheriff... I don't know. It's that beast or man under the tree there. It or he was never there an hour ago as I walked Maid Marion this way. Eh, hello there. 
Who's the scoundrel dares kick at me? Oh, here now, be careful whom you call scoundrel. And I only shoved you a bit with my toe to see if you were man or beast lying there. Why do you wrap yourself in such skin, stranger? Guy of Gisborne dresses as he chooses. Any objection? If there is, my cudgel's ready. Guy of Gisborne. So you're Guy of Gisborne. Heard of me, have you? Most folks have. Aye, aye, and I heard, too, you were saving that cudgel for a fellow named Robinson. No need to be saving. I can break your head and then take care of him. <laughs> He's the least of my worries. Really? You've never heard that Robin Hood is the best archer in the country? And a stout man with the cudgels as well? Ah, he'll go over like a ninepin when I step up to him. Him, an outlaw. He's never killed a man in his life. He boasts of it, the ninny. My friend, your wrappings of old skins disgusted me at first. Your words disgust me even more. Watch out, fella! All right, a fight then. My cudgel is with me and as ready as yours. Have a care, guy. Ah. Have a care yourself. Ah. Oh! Look out, stranger, for that blow. I mean to kill you. Kill me, you guy of Gisborne. For here is now. It's Robin Hood himself you fight. Robin Hood? You're Robin Hood? Yeah, that I am. And I warn you now, guy of Gisborne, if you lift that cudgel again, you'll be sorry indeed. I'll be sorry? Scoundrel, don't fool! Take that! There! I'll, I'll smash you like an egg! I'll take you like a... Kill me, would you? Well, lie there a while and cool your temper, Guy of Giesborn. And when you awake, your bones may remember that Robin Hood's not so easy to kill. Oh, oh, lack a day. What, what's to do now? What? Who's that? Hello? Who comes this way through Sherwood? Who? Why, why, it's above, it's Robin. Robin himself. But, but good heaven, what's all this? <laughs> why, it's plain to see, Friar. I've stretched this fellow out to rest a bit. Yeah, but what's wrong with you? You look as though the pastry you're eating is heavy as lead. No, 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 not the pastry, Robin. It's, well, it's what? Swallow, Friar, swallow. And tell me clearly what's amiss. <clears throat> yes, I had to eat, Robin. Keep from weeping like a child, but... Now, now I've found you, it'll be all right. What will be all right? Explain yourself. Little John, the sheriff has him in Nottingham. No. True, going to hang him in the morning. The sheriff hanging little John? I must get to Nottingham. Oh, yes, yes, but, but then what, Robin? Little John's in jail. The sheriff's taking him to the gallows tree at dawn. He is, is he? Now, I know. These skins on our unconscious friend here. Help me, Friar Tuck. Help me get them off him and onto myself. You're going to dress up in those odorous skins, but why? Yes, it's the perfect way to fool the sheriff just long enough, Tuck. Ah, yes, that's, that's right. The skin of my shoulders, so. And we'll see now what happens at dawn tomorrow morning. <laughs> No, no, I'll get free yet. Uh, struggle if you will, Barlet. You're on your way to the gallows at last. And I say, look who comes down the road. Hold a minute, guard. Uh, oh. oh, I'd know the fellow who wears those skins anywhere. It's Guy of Giesborne. How now, man? What luck? Did you meet the outlaw? I married did, Sheriff. And I met him and sunk at him yesterday. What? Robin. He's killed Robin. Oh, no. Oh, Robin Hood's dead at last. Oh, good man, Guy of Giesborne. Good man. Well, now I die happily too, nor do I care how if Robin Hood has been slain by this monster. I, I took good care of him. And now I'll gladly take care of you with the sheriff's permission. Oh, you want to put this fellow out of the way, Guy? Oh, all right. It's a favor I'll grant, and gladly, after the service you did me. Uh, have him step out on the road here, by me. Uh, step along, little John. Guy of Giesborn wants you in cudgeling distance. <laughs> step along, that's right. All right, wretch, here I am. Do what you will. First, I'll cut the rope that binds your hands so like this. Robin! Now, 
from under my skin with a bow and arrow for you, one for me. But I thought... Later, John, later. Right now, send those arrows speeding over the heads of the guards while we fly. Fly for our lives. Hey, catch us if you can, Jerry! Robin Hood's voice. Look, little John's free. They're running. Oh, no, no. After them, men. Don't let them get away. After them. After them. But he'll never capture Robin Hood until he goes wings and flies. <laughs> Yet, Alan Adele. I thank you, Maid Marian, especially as it's likely to be the last. To that song, at any rate. Ah, yes, with King Richard home at last, and the sheriff off in London answering for his sins, there'll be no more sport with him ever again, I fear. Uh, the Greenwood won't seem the same. <laughs> no sighing, little John. You said the same when Maid Marian said she'd marry me. But the Greenwood is the same, and always will be. Come, a song to the Greenwood, Alan Adele, where we live now not as outlaws, but by choice. Robin Hood, Maid Marian, and all the merry men. A song to our Greenwood home. And that's our Let's Pretend version of the famous old legend of Robin Hood. The pretenders for today were Robin Hood, Robert Moran, Little John, Bill Lipton, Alan Adele, Arthur Anderson, Gaffer Tandy, Jack Rhymes, Sheriff of Nottingham, Donald Madden, Maid Marian, Devil Trent, Guy of Gisborne, Don Hughes, Woman at the Market, Gwen Davies, and Friar Tuck, Roger Sullivan. The original music was composed and conducted by Maurice Brown. Let's Pretend is directed by Gene Height, and Robin Hood was specially written for today's production by Johanna Johnston. Let's Pretend comes to you from New York. So remember, all of you pretenders who live nearby, we're always glad to have you come visit a broadcast. Just write for free tickets to CBS Radio, New York City. And say, next week, there's one of your favorites coming up. The merry and magical story of the Emperor's Nightingale. Be listening. And now here's Warren Sweeney again. Yes, pretenders, a man who pinches pennies and plays the violin off-key as well doesn't sound like such a bargain. But somehow, when it's Jack Benny who's playing Miser and Love and Bloom, it all adds up to lots and lots of laughter. Remember, you can hear him and all his gang right here on CBS Radio every Sunday evening. And don't forget either, tried and true Amos and Andy are here every Sunday on the CBS Radio Network. <laughs> But that was a radio broadcast because they mentioned Jack Benny and Amos and Andy there. Well, yeah, they're cross promoting, mm-hmm. like we cross promote. Yeah. yeah. So I missed. Okay, Jack Grimes was in there, but I missed the name. He said who he was playing. It sounded like he said something Tandy. Yeah, uh, I'm I looking know. up characters from Robin Hood, and I can't find um anything that sounds like that. But they said it really quick. 
at the end. When yeah, they, they so, do. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't Will Scarlet. It wasn't Ivanhoe. Uh, wasn't Little John? Hmm. Might have been. No, I don't know. Not Will Scarlet. I don't know. But anyway, um, but yeah. So, so weird. So that was fun, you know. It was it was all they just kind of hit the real basics of it, um, yeah. You know? So of course, but then he's like, "Oh, he'll never find out who I am. I'm gonna dye my face with walnut oil." Oh, did they say walnut oil? <laughs> walnut dye or something like that. So I don't understand that. That uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a disguise. Uh, it's a disguise made with methods of the forest. Ah, the old dye your face with things. walnut dye trick. Yeah, that old trick. Yeah, so... He's gonna dye his hair with henna. Yeah, and I posted my uh, picture of my favorite uh, Merry Men, Big Chuck and Lil John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Local Cleveland treasures. Anyway, I don't want to diverge too yeah. much there. But, um... But yeah, that was okay. It, it was an okay version. Uh, you know, obviously, twenty-three minutes you can only do so much, and then they had the kids riding motorcycles in the beginning. Yeah, I caught that. Um, Very what? odd, but just another <laughs> method of transportation. Get the slide whistle, and we're bringing in the motorcycles for the kids. <laughs> Woo! It's exciting. Yeah, at least they didn't go by jet again. They've gone oh. by jet. Propulsion well, so many times. It's ridiculous. You couldn't take any mode of transportation in the theater of the mind. Yes. <laughs> yeah, rather. <laughs> Just use your imagination, kids. Use the use your figment of imagination. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's a dumb quote from a dumb movie. Um yeah. uh, not the figment of your imagination. Use your figment of imagination. Um Anyway, uh, no, that was good. That was good-ish, you know. Was, I'm glad uh, you liked it. Yeah, you know. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's, you know, let's pretend it only has so much mileage in it for an adult in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're supposed to be enjoying the fun simplicity of a radio show. Now, you listen to Golden Age of Radio all the time. Yeah, but, but sometimes I, you listen to the darker, scarier stuff. Well, I prefer the like the really good science fiction and horror and mystery stuff that actually is engaging and kind of puts you on the edge of the edge of your seat and isn't just like you know, ha ha! Look, I'm gonna take you out to sell you these cows, but they're not really cows; they're deer. And now we're gonna take you back and have a dinner, and then we're gonna send you <laughs> back with nothing. <laughs> thought they were gonna kick his ass. I thought they were gonna like you know get all sharks. Yeah, they it. just took his money. Yeah, so they rolled him. They rolled him. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling old men for their money. Old sheriffs of so. Nottingham. Uh oh, Foxeyes. Yep, kiddo wants a motorcycle. Oh my gosh, kiddo wants a motorcycle. What could possibly? Does he need a sidecar? No. Can he hmm? be on a motorcycle, or does he need a sidecar? Uh, yeah, I think he might have to have a specially Question. designed one, or he can just improvise. Yeah. So. Oh, he might eat the motorcycle. He might eat a couple things. Maybe he should ride a Vespa. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I I've Vespa. wanted to ride a Vespa. They've got a Vespa seller around the corner. Yep. 
That's all I need. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about our next story. Um, we we could go to the wonderful land of Oz, the marvelous before the eight o'clock hour, marvelous land of Oz. We could play part one and then the Green News Report if you would like. Well, it's it's past point one. I mean, it's I think we're on seven or eight. It's up at the top in orange. Yo, no, it's number seven. seven. It's His Majesty the yeah, Scarecrow. Seven. Yeah, yeah, okay. I was but, just um, saying yeah, I, could, we'll... I could play that, and then we could do the Green News Report. Yeah, and then, and then we'll uh, talk about some other shows on the um, Radio for Humans Network. Radio, yeah, and uh, we'll have a nice talk about that. Mm. And then we'll talk about the kind of motorcycle. Bye. There's only like three other shows. <laughs> okay. Everybody knows about them. Um, so I'm just kidding. Uh, but oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We're getting there, folks. We're getting there. So getting there. Um, kiddo I, loves all three of those shows. He loves them all and he listens to them. Well, he's got three, you know, he can, he can use, uh, three sets of earbuds. Yeah. He can so. listen to them all at once. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, all yeah, here's uh, the Marvelous Land of Oz Part 7 coming up. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marvelous Land of Oz by L. Frank Baum Chapter 7 His Majesty the Scarecrow I suppose every reader of this book knows what a scarecrow is, but Jack Pumpkinhead, never having seen such a creation, was more surprised at meeting the remarkable king of the Emerald City than by any other one experience of his brief life. His Majesty the Scarecrow was dressed in a suit of faded blue clothes, and his head was merely a small sack stuffed with straw upon which eyes, ears, a nose and a mouth had been rudely painted to represent a face. The clothes were also stuffed with straw, and that so unevenly or carelessly that His Majesty's legs and arms seemed more bumpy than was necessary. Upon his hands were gloves with long fingers, and these were padded with cotton. Wisps of straw stuck out from the monarch's coat and also from his neck and boot tops. Upon his head he wore a heavy golden crown set thick with sparkling jewels, and the weight of this crown caused his brow to sag in wrinkles, giving a thoughtful expression to the painted face. Indeed, the crown alone betokened majesty. In all else, the scarecrow king was but a simple scarecrow, flimsy, awkward, and unsubstantial. But if the strange appearance of His Majesty the Scarecrow seemed startling to Jack, no less wonderful was the form of the pumpkin head to the Scarecrow. The purple trousers and pink waistcoat and red shirt hung loosely over the wooden joints Tip had manufactured, and the carved face on the pumpkin grinned perpetually, as if its wearer considered life the jolliest thing imaginable. At first, indeed, His Majesty thought his queer visitor was laughing at him, and was inclined to resent such a liberty. But 
It was not without reason that the Scarecrow had attained the reputation of being the wisest personage in the land of Oz. He made a more careful examination of his visitor and soon discovered that Jack's features were carved into a smile and that he could not look grave if he wished to. The king was first to speak. After regarding Jack for some minutes, he said in a tone of wonder, Where on earth do you come from? How do you happen to be alive? I beg your majesty's pardon, returned the pumpkin head, but I do not understand you. What don't you understand? asked the scarecrow. Why, I don't understand your language. You see, I came from the country of the Gillikins, so that I am a foreigner. Ah, to be sure, exclaimed the scarecrow. I myself speak the language of the Munchkins, which is also the language of the Emerald City. But you, I suppose, speak the language of the pumpkin heads? Exactly so, your majesty, replied the other, bowing. So it will be impossible for us to understand one another. That is unfortunate, certainly, said the scarecrow thoughtfully. We must have an interpreter. What is an interpreter? asked Jack. A person who understands both my language and your own. When I say anything, the interpreter can tell you what I mean, and when you say anything, the interpreter can tell me what you mean. For the interpreter can speak both languages as well as understand them. That is certainly clever, said Jack. Greatly pleased at finding so simple a way out of the difficulty. So the scarecrow commanded the soldier with the green whiskers to search among his people until he found one who understood the language of the Gillikins as well as the language of the Emerald City and to bring that person to him at once. When the soldier had departed, the scarecrow said, Won't you take a chair while we're waiting? Your Majesty forgets that I cannot understand you, replied the pumpkin head. If you wish me to sit down, you must make a sign for me to do so. The scarecrow came down from his throne and rolled an armchair to a position behind the pumpkin head. Then he gave Jack a sudden push that sent him sprawling upon the cushions, in so awkward a fashion that he doubled up like a jackknife and had hard work to untangle himself. Did you understand that sign? asked his Majesty politely. Perfectly, declared Jack, reaching up his arms to turn his head to the front, the pumpkin having twisted around upon the stick that supported it. You seem hastily made, remarked the scarecrow, watching Jack's effort to straighten himself. Not more so than your majesty, was the frank reply. There is this difference between us, said the scarecrow, that whereas I will bend but not break, you will break but not bend. At this moment the soldier returned, leading a young girl by the hand. She seemed very sweet and modest, having a pretty face and beautiful green eyes and hair. A dainty green silk skirt reached to her knees, showing silk stockings embroidered with pea-pods, and green satin slippers with bunches of lettuce for decorations, instead of bows or buckles. Upon her silken waist clover leaves were embroidered, and she wore a jaunty little jacket trimmed with sparkling emeralds of a uniform size. Why, it's little Jellia Jam! exclaimed the scarecrow as the green maiden bowed her pretty head before him. Do you understand the language of the Gillikins, my dear? Yes, Your Majesty, she answered, 
for I was born in the North Country. Then you shall be our interpreter, said the scarecrow, and explain to this pumpkin head all that I say, and also explain to me all that he says. Is this arrangement satisfactory? he asked, turning toward his guest. Very satisfactory indeed, was the reply. Then ask him to begin with, resumed the scarecrow, turning to Jellia, what brought him to the Emerald City? But instead of this, the girl who had been staring at Jack said to him, You are certainly a wonderful creature. Who made you? A boy named Tip, answered Jack. What does he say? inquired the scarecrow. My ears must have deceived me. What did he say? He says that your majesty's brains seem to have come loose, replied the girl demurely. The scarecrow moved uneasily upon his throne and felt of his head with his left hand. What a fine thing it is to understand two different languages, he said, with a perplexed sigh. Ask him, my dear, if he has any objections to being put in jail for insulting the ruler of the Emerald City. I didn't insult you, protested Jack indignantly. Tut, tut, cautioned the scarecrow. Wait until Jillia translates my speech. What have we got an interpreter for if you break out in this rash way? All right, I'll wait, replied the pumpkin head in a surly tone, although his face smiled as genially as ever. Translate the speech, young woman. His Majesty inquires if you are hungry, said Jillia. Oh, not at all, answered Jack more pleasantly, for it is impossible for me to eat. It's the same way with me, remarked the scarecrow. What did he say, Jillia, my dear? He asked if you were aware that one of your eyes is painted larger than the other, said the girl mischievously. Don't you believe her, your majesty, cried Jack. Oh, I don't, answered the scarecrow calmly, then casting a sharp look at the girl he asked. Are you quite certain you understand the languages of both the Gillikins and the Munchkins? Quite certain, your majesty, said Jillia Jam, trying hard not to laugh in the face of royalty. Then how is it that I seem to understand them myself? inquired the scarecrow. Because they're one and the same, declared the girl, now laughing merrily. Does not your majesty know that in all the land of Oz but one language is spoken? Is it indeed so? cried the scarecrow, much relieved to hear this. Then I might easily have been my own interpreter. It was all my fault, your majesty, said Jack, looking rather foolish. I thought we must surely speak different languages, since we came from different countries. This should be a warning to you never to think, returned the scarecrow severely. For unless one can think wisely, it is better to remain a dummy, which you most certainly are. I am, I certainly am, agreed the pumpkin head. It seems to me, continued the scarecrow more mildly, that your manufacturer spoiled some good pies to create an indifferent man. I assure your majesty that I did not ask to be created, answered Jack. Ah, it was the same in my case, said the king pleasantly. And so we differ from all ordinary people. Let us become friends. With all my heart, exclaimed Jack. Oh, have you a heart? asked the scarecrow, surprised. No, that was only imaginative. I might say a figure of speech, said the other. Well, your most prominent figure seems to be a figure of wood. 
So I must beg you to restrain an imagination which, having no brains, you have no right to exercise, suggested the scarecrow warningly. To be sure, said Jack, without in the least comprehending. His Majesty then dismissed Jillia Jam and the soldier with the green whiskers, and, when they were gone, he took his new friend by the arm and led him into the courtyard to play a game of quoits. End chapter 7 Ah, uh, translators. Do we need them? Not when we speak the same language. Once again, we're being taught an important information, an important lesson by Frank Elbaum. Yeah. And Tip is still missing. Tip is still missing. You, um, if you come from different countries, it doesn't mean you speak different languages. That's what he just told you. Sure. Maybe yeah. they have... Oh, no, I'm not going to say it. Yeah. I was going to say maybe they have a universal translator like on Star Trek. Well, <laughs> no, they don't. Hates, Susan but, um, Star Trek. <laughs> I posted the pie because uh, the Scarecrow said it looks like your maker ruined some perfectly good pies. Because... By... Uh, pumpkin. By making... By using your pumpkin head. Yeah. That's a kind of a rude thing to say. Yeah. Well, you could have been I eaten guess. by somebody instead of being a sentient being. Wow. Scarecrow, uh, you got a, a little vicious. Scarecrow's got a stick up his butt. <laughs> yeah, he well, might Scarecrows be. do because they're. Yep. Uh, laughing at my own jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. uh, well, since it's Earth Day, why don't we, why don't we run along and do the Green News Report? But, uh, that was, uh. That was Definitely. Quite, uh, yeah. I so. love me some green news report. Let's go. It's Earth Day, Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. It's precisely the sort of target that we need to see. President Biden vows to cut U.S. emissions in half by 2030. European Union and Britain accelerate emissions cuts under the Paris Climate Agreement. Plus, a lot has happened since we introduced this resolution two years ago. AOC and Senator Markey reintroduced the Green New Deal. All of those vows, cuts, and reintroductions straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Everything's infrastructure, because infrastructure is the word that sells with voters. And if they're successful in doing that, they will ram this through, through reconciliation, and suddenly, while Voila, you have the Green New Deal. Voila! Who knew? Someone really ought to tell AOC and Senator Markey, who just reintroduced the actual Green New Deal. Yes, but that's just what they want you to think. A cunning misdirection. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Hey, happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day to you, too. But of course, for us... 
Every day is Earth Day. Since the first Earth Day in 1970, the planet has warmed by more than one degree Celsius over pre-industrial levels because of humanity's use of fossil fuels. And that, according to a new report by the World Meteorological Organization, is resulting in relentless intensification of the climate emergency. Last year, the world saw record-breaking extreme weather disasters on nearly every continent, along with accelerating sea level rise and ocean acidification. Solving man-made climate change is the focus of President Joe Biden's two-day virtual leader summit on climate, beginning on Earth Day. As we go to air, Biden is set to announce new U.S. emissions targets under the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. That's half. That's in nine years, we'll never make it. <laughs> we can make it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And that puts us on the path to his goal of net zero emissions by 2050. That's nearly double the target set under the Obama administration, and achieving it would transform the U.S. economy, generating jobs in decarbonizing electricity, transportation, manufacturing, and building construction, with huge increases in renewable energy deployment across the country. You mean putting us all out of work so that we either freeze from the cold or uh, die from the heat. Or put everyone to work, making the U.S. a cleaner and greener place. Oh, well, there's that. In an interview with the Green News Report, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann of Penn State University says Biden's target is in line with what the science indicates is necessary. It's precisely the sort of target that we need to see. Uh, We know that we need to bring down global carbon emissions by a factor of two within the next decade if we're to remain on a course limiting warming below catastrophic levels, one and a half degrees Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit. And so what Biden has done here is really up the ante. I wonder how ante feels about it. The details of Biden's plan have not yet been released, but Politico reports the target is designed to be achievable without help from the deeply divided Congress. The new target sends a message that the United States is rejoining the international effort to fight global warming after the climate denial of the Trump administration. This week, the European Union also increased their target, striking a provisional deal on sweeping climate legislation legislation that sets a legally binding target of slashing the EU's net greenhouse gas emissions by 55 percent by 2030 and achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Just like us. The UK also announced a tougher target to cut their emissions 78 percent compared to 1990 levels by 2035. Wow. That would take the UK three quarters of the way to reaching net zero by 2050. Here in the U.S., progressive Democrats are also pushing ahead. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York this week reintroduced their Green New Deal framework to ensure that decarbonizing the U.S. economy includes equity and a just transition for working families. And U.S. climate action matters. Climate scientists say that if the world waits until the 2030s to get serious about cutting emissions, then the pace that would be required to meet the Paris Agreement's temperature targets would be very costly and may be technologically impossible. According to Dr. Mann, cutting emissions in half by 2030 is achievable with tools we already have on hand, but setting the target is only the beginning. The real battle now is going to be over the next couple years if the Biden administration can use you know, whatever diplomatic tools it has at its disposal and Democrats can use whatever parliamentary tools they have at their disposal to pass 
meaningful climate legislation that can complement the executive actions the administration is taking. We wish them all luck. Only the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Happy Earth Day Green News Report. And I remember what it is to be so green It was so green <clears throat> And what could kiddo be up to? Anything. How does kiddo feel about the green news report? How does kiddo feel about Earth Day? Hmm Hmm that's a good question. How does kiddo reduce his carbon footprint? Emission, carbon footprint. Well, what does kiddo think about robots? I bet kiddo and the robots would have robots. a great interaction. Oh, robots! Yeah, oh, we got robots. new. We got new robots for tomorrow, and it came from Cleveland answering Francie's listener question. That's exciting. Should she I've do heard a, it away with I her like landline? It. Yeah, but I can't tell you about it. Because no. Ken already told you about it. Yes. And she, uh, she'd have to kill you. <laughs> so. <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, you know, um, again, and, we'll, you know, we're going to be talking about Earth Day tomorrow in kind of a, a weird way. I shared a little article there uh, about Eddie Albert's involvement with Earth Day. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, from 2009. Um but yeah, so well, you know, I guess, uh, like you said, the fairies—they're they're very green. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe we should listen to the Swazi tale of the fairy frog. Why not? Why not? So, I want to get that one. So I was. I'm, I'm curious about it. You found it, and it's exciting. Yeah, I was so. poking around. On oh, we got a kiddo drop. We got a kiddo drop. Oh, we got a kiddo drop. Oh, it involves a space capsule. Mm. Oh my, that's gorgeous. Look at that. That is fun. Kiddo gives yeah. returning astronauts a warm welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they enjoy that. I, I, I totally I, into it. I was like, where's Kiddo's third head? And then I was like, oh, the parachute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's funny. Well, his, his first head is seeing if the space capsule is delicious. Yeah, so thank you. It's usually what one of his heads does, eat something, you know? Yeah. He's kind of well, like a toddler. He puts stuff in his mouth. Sure. Well, he doesn't have hands, like so, that. you know. Yeah, he puts stuff in his mouth. It's adorable. Sure. You know, it's what your mouth has to double his hands sometimes when you just got a couple little flippers. <laughs> it's true. All right. Saving the kiddo pick for show art for our podcast listeners. We're assuming we have a permission. Do we have to ask permission every time? I think she's okay with it being show art. Is okay you know, with it? That's I, cool. Uh, I think so. He's so um, cute. He Love is, him. So kiss him and uh, kiss him like a kitten. All right. So very good. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah. So there he is back in the back in the sixties for the splashdown. Yeah. 
Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, the the Swazi tale of the fairy frog. Mm-hmm. All right, this you came, got it. Let's do it. This came from a collection over on LibriVox while I was doing a little bit of a search. There's uh, mm-hmm. basically it's a they're, they're curated selections of um, folklore and fairy tales from around the world. And uh, I thought that would be fun just to explore some things that we might not be familiar with. And, of course, the country Swaziland is no longer Swaziland. I forget what it is. It's a South African uh, nation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, this this one's called the fairy frog. So fairies well, were the, everywhere. The thing is, we do have a lot of frogs. We have a mm-hmm. lot of frogs and a lot of fairy tales and a lot of princes become frogs. But mm-hmm. not usually fairy frogs. So I'm kind of excited to see how... This frog, is it related to a prince or is it related to a fairy or what's going on here? So, the fairy. Oh, sorry. There you go. I'll start it again. The fairy frog. A Swazi tale from Fairy Tales from South Africa by E.J. Boerhill and J.B. Drake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fairy Frog, a Swazi Tale Dombiende was the most beautiful girl in her father's kingdom. She had milk-white teeth and sparkling eyes. Her figure was perfect and very gracefully turned, and no one could lead the dance half so well as she. Besides, you could not help noticing her the moment she appeared, for she was taller than all her sisters and carried her head like a true princess. Her parents looked on her daily with joy and pride. They called her Tombi Ende, the tall maiden, and expected she would one day be a mighty queen. But no one has an altogether happy lot. And though Tombiende was tall and beautiful and had the gayest and most wonderful handkerchiefs with which to deck herself and more beads and bracelets than any other girl in the countryside, this only gave her the more trouble. For none of her sisters were as pretty as she or as much admired. And as time went on, they grew more and more jealous. At last, they decided that Tombe Ende must die, or no one would ever notice them at all. So they made a plan to kill their sister, as if by accident. One day, they all came to her and said, Let us go and get red ochre out of the great pit. There is none left in the kraal at all. So every maiden shouldered her pick, and they walked together singing and laughing for many miles. At last they reached a great red pit many feet deep, surrounded by tall grass on every side. There they stopped. Each girl leapt down in turn, dug out a lump of the precious red earth, and then jumped up again. They all stood round the pit waiting for one another. But directly Tombe Ende jumped down, every one of those wicked girls seized her pick and threw earth upon her as fast as she could, till poor Tombe Ende was buried alive. 
Then they ran away, leaving her for dead, for the red earth is very heavy. But Tombe Ende was not dead. The people who passed heard screams coming from the pit, and sometimes a voice calling, I am Tombe Ende, I am not dead, I am like one of yourselves. Two men turned out of the path and looked down into the great hole, but all they could see was the red earth glistening in the sun. So they turned away and walked on. The wicked sisters, meanwhile, went back to their father's kraal and told all whom they met, Tombe Ende is dead. She fell down in the red ochre pit and was smothered. But when the king came to question them, they grew confused and could not tell their tale. So he chopped off their heads there and then with a great battle-axe and gave their bodies to the vultures. And that would have been the end of them had not a dear good old fairy come along who knew that Tombe Ende was not dead and was sorry to see her sisters so severely punished. She went to the bodies and sprinkled them with medicine from her magic calabash. The sisters sat up at once alive and well, rubbing their eyes. Take the girls away and keep them out of the king's sight till Tombe Ende returns, said the fairy, and everyone was only too glad to obey her. Tombe Ende lay in the red ochre pit for many hours and thought no one would ever rescue her. But at evening she heard a great croaking above her. Looking up, she saw an enormous frog blinking his little eyes at the edge of the pit. Beautiful princess, said he, what are you doing here? Alas, said Tombe Ende, my sisters are jealous of me and hate me, and they have left me here and thrown earth upon me so that I cannot get out. I will help you, said the frog. He jumped into the pit, opened his big mouth, and swallowed the princess entirely. Then he jumped up again and landed safely on the path above, the princess still inside him. Forthwith, the frog set out on his travels. He hopped all night, carefully avoiding any kraals by the way, for a frog brings bad luck and is not welcome in human dwellings. Whenever he passed a bird, he sang, Do not swallow me, I carry the princess Tombeende. And no creature touched him. The next morning, they narrowly escaped a great danger, for they met a horrible ogress. She had heard that Tombeende was still alive and defenceless, and had already been to the red ochre pit, and found it empty. Now she was searching for her everywhere in savage haste. But luckily she paid no attention to a big frog, and went her way without heeding its appearance. At midday the frog stopped, opened his mouth, and let the princess walk out. Then he said, Wait here and rest. By and by we will go on again. He also provided food. He merely croaked, and delicious porridge appeared in a little brown pot, all ready for the princess to eat. Tombe Ende ate, and then slept under the bushes, for she was very tired. Towards evening, the frog swallowed her again, 
and they set forth once more on their journey. They had decided not to go back to her father's kraal for fear of her jealous sisters, but journeyed towards the home of her grandmother, where she was sure of every welcome. They travelled for days, resting in the heat, but never stopping all night long, and one morning they arrived at the grandmother's kraal. The frog went up to the door of the chief hut and sang loudly, I am carrying Tombeende, the beautiful princess, whom they killed in the red pit. The old grandmother came out, saying, Who is this speaking? Who knows what has become of my darling Tombeende? I know all about her, said the frog. Bring clean mats, spread them before me, and you will see. All the women brought fine new mats and put them before the frog. When all was ready, the frog just said, Ooh, ooh, oh! And in a moment, Tombe Ender herself was before them, as tall and beautiful as ever. Great was the joy of all, and no one could hear her tale often enough or her praises of the wonderful frog. What can we do for you as a reward for your kindness? said the grandmother to the frog. Is there nothing we can give you? I only ask you to kill two oxen and two bulls, said the frog, and let us have a feast. So a great feast was held, and the frog sat by the princess's side and had great honour. Next morning he had disappeared, and though the princess searched for him all round the kraal, he could nowhere be found. The grandmother knew that Tombe Ende was now in no danger at home, so she sent a message to her father to tell him of his daughter's safety. The king was much delighted, and at once dispatched Tombe Ende's brother to fetch her home. He rested a few days at the kraal, for the journey was long, and then they both set out on their return. Now, the rains had been short that year, and many streams were dry. The sun was very hot, and after hours of walking, the princess and her brother were very thirsty. Nowhere could they find the accustomed springs, for the ground was harder than brick dried in an oven, and the watercourses were dry. They went on and on till they were fainting with the heat. Suddenly they met a stranger, an immensely big man, who stood right across the path. Except for his size, he was like other men, and they did not at first distrust him. What do you want? said he in a deep bass voice, which rumbled like thunder. We are looking for water, said the prince. All the springs are dried up, and we are yet many days from home. If I give you water, said the giant, what will you give me in return? Ask for anything in my father's kingdom, said the prince. Give me this beautiful princess, said the giant with a wicked smile. If not, you will die of thirst. All the springs are dry within three days' journey. The brother and sister were in dismay. But although the prince hated the idea of giving his sister to a stranger, they were both so helpless that he could only consent. 
The giant chuckled and led the way to a great fig tree by the side of the dry watercourse. He struck his stick upon the ground, and out of the very roots of the tree sprang a fountain clear as the moon and cool as the depths of the forest. They all drank eagerly and long, and it was only after some minutes that the princess lifted her head and looked towards the giant. She shrieked long and loud, for the giant had turned into a most terrible Izuma, monstrous and misshapen, covered with red hair and glaring at her with his little wild eyes. His long tail lay behind him on the grass, and his white pointed teeth showed between his thick lips. The prince looked up at once, and he also saw in what great peril his sister lay. The ogre was terribly strong, and no fighting could save them. He simply glared at them, his eyes full of evil pleasure. Suddenly the princess heard a well-known croak, and right out of the water sprang a great frog. There is my preserver, said Tom Behende. Help us, frog, no one is so clever and wise as you. The frog advanced right in front of the ogre, who looked at him with disdain. He just opened his mouth and said, boo oh, boo oh!" In one minute he had swallowed the ogre right up, tail and all, and then he disappeared into the fountain. There he stayed till the ogre was drowned. When he came out again, the water had dried up, and the ogre lay buried among the roots of the great fig tree. Ah, frog, how can I thank you enough, said the princess. This time you must not disappear. You must come home with us. In three days they reached her father's kraal. The king's guard stood in order to greet them, gloriously arrayed in otter skins with shields and assegais. Her father stood at their head and hailed them both with joy. But what, said her father, is that horrible frog at your side? I must have the wretch killed. Do not kill him, father, said Tombeende. He saved my life, twice. And at those very words, the frog suddenly grew into a handsome man, taller than Tombeende herself. He was in full warlike array, with shield and assegai, and a great plume of white ostrich feathers on his head. Anyone could see at once that he was a prince. All greeted him with loud shouts. Only Tombe Ende was not so very much surprised. I am no frog, said the prince. My father is a great chief. The ogre from whom I rescued the princess overcame me by witchcraft in former days. But now that I have won the love of a maiden, I am once more free. Give me the hand of your daughter in marriage, and one hundred cattle shall be yours. A few days later, Tombe Ende married the fairy frog, and all will acknowledge that it was a reward he well deserved. As for the wicked sisters, the king forgave them in his great joy, and Tombe Ende forgot all her troubles in a new home. End of The Fairy Frog, A Swazi Tale
by E.J. Borhill and J.B. Drake. So it looks like uh, princes and frogs are a universal trait in fairy tales. Yeah. You got this from a collection of South African uh, no, tales, it, it right? was actually fairy tales and folklore from around the world. This one just happened to be um, because there were there was like Hawaiian ones and uh, Native American ones and hmm. Norse, Germ- German, uh, Greek. So yeah, okay. I just found it again. I was looking for uh, more information, and I found it in fairy tales from South Africa. So nice. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that one I like that one a lot. That one was very um uh it it hit a lot of the notes there, you know. You've got the the kind of the evil, you know, jealous sisters, you know. Yeah. Um you have the uh hmm, the prince. I'm jealous of this woman. Let's kill her. Yeah. What? The the, the prince who does this? Yeah, the the prince who was the frog. Um uh the you know, the you know, just a, a lot of it yeah. was was uh, very, you know, classic fairy. Reminiscent, fairy. reminiscent. Yeah. Archetypal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no, I enjoyed that one quite a bit. That was uh, that was neat. Cool. And um, yeah. So uh, and I'm I've just uh, finished the color job and the oh wow uh, already image, great tile image for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the latest kiddo picture by Foxfire505. So nice. I'll be dropping that in the chat room uh, in a second. Yeah. Um, but no, that was really cool. I'm uh, There's another one I'm very curious about, if you don't mind if I play it from that collection. As I mentioned, there, oh. was, there was a Hawaiian one. Oh. And I have never really heard much in the way of Hawaiian folklore or fairy tales. Outside Ooh, what's this of, one called? Outside of the the Brady Bunch uh, <laughs> episode with the cursed idol and Vincent Price, <laughs> I forgot Vincent Price was on that Brady Bunch episode. Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, this one is called, um, and I think I can actually pronounce it right. Uh, it was called. Oh, uh, where is it? I'm just looking through. Oh, uh, the ghost of Waula Temple. Oh, okay. So, uh, shall we? Yeah, let's let's do it. Like I said, uh, I'm not really familiar with many Hawaiian, there, but this is this is exciting. We don't know much about it, but let's throw it out there. See how things go. The ghost of Wahaula Temple, by William Drake Westervelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost of Wahaula Temple Hawaiian temples were never works of art. Broken lava was always near the site upon which a temple was to be built. Rough, unhewn stones were easily piled into massive walls and laid in terraces for altar and floors. Water-worn pebbles were carried from the nearest beach and strewn over the uneven floor, making a comparatively smooth place over which the naked feet of the temple dwellers passed without the injuries which would otherwise frequently come from the sharp-edged lava. Rude grass huts built on terraces were the abodes of the priests and of the high chiefs who sometimes visited the places of sacrifice. 
Elevated flat-top piles of stones were usually built at one end of the temple for the chief idols and the sacrifices placed before them. Simplicity of detail marked every step of temple erection. No hewn pillars or arched gateways of even the most primitive designs can be found in any of the temples whether of recent date or belonging to remote antiquity. There was no attempt at ornamentation, even in the images of the great gods which they worshipped. Crude, uncouth, and hideous were the images before which they offered sacrifice and prayer. In themselves, the heyus, or temples, of the Hawaiian islands have but little attraction. Today, they seem more like massive walled cattle pens than places which had ever been used for sacred worship. On the southeast coast of the island of Hawaii, near Kalapana, is one of the largest, oldest, and best-preserved heyus, or temples, in the Hawaiian islands. It is no exception to the architectural rule for Hawaiian temples, and is worthy of the name of temple only as it is intimately associated with the religious customs of the Hawaiians. Its walls are several feet thick, and in places 10 to 12 feet high. It is divided into rooms or pens, in one of which still lies a huge sacrificial stone upon which victims, sometimes human, were slain before the bodies placed as offerings in front of the hideous idols leaning against the stone walls. This heyu now bears the name Wahaula, or Red Mouth. In ancient times, it was known as Ahaula, or the Red Assembly, possibly denoting that at times the priests and their attendants wore red mantles in their processions or during some part of their sacred ceremonies. This temple is said to be the oldest of all the Hawaiian heyus, except possibly the heyu at Kohala on the northern coast of the same island. These two heyus date back in tradition to the time of Pau, the priest of Upolu Samoa, who was said to have built them. He was a traditional father of the priestly line which ran parallel to the royal genealogy of the Kamehamehas. During several centuries until the last high priest, Hewahewa, became a follower of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. This was the last heyu destroyed when the ancient taboos and ceremonial rites were overthrown by the chiefs just before the coming of Christian missionaries. At that time, the grass houses of the priests were burned and in these raging flames were thrown the wooden idols back of the altars, and the bamboo huts of the soothsayers, and the rude images on the walls, with everything combustible which belonged to the ancient order of worship. Only the walls and rough stone floors were left in the temple. And the outer temple court was the most noted sacred grave in all the islands. Earth had been carried from the mountainside inland. Leaves and decaying trees added to the permanency of the soil. Here, in a most unlikely place, it was said that all varieties of trees then found in the islands had been gathered by the priests, the descendants of Pau. To this day, the grave stands by the temple walls, an object of superstitious awe among the natives. Many of the varieties of trees there planted have died, leaving only those which were more hardy and needed less priestly care than they received a hundred years or more ago. The temple is built near the coast on the rough, sharp, broken rocks of an ancient lava flow. In many places in and around the temple, the lava was dug out, making holes three or four feet across and from one to two feet deep. These, in the days of the priesthood, had been filled with earth brought in baskets from the mountains. Here they raised sweet potatoes and taro and bananas. Now the rains have washed the soil away and, to the unknowing, there is no sign of previous agriculture. Near these depressions and along the paths leading to Wahaula, other holes were sometimes cut out of the hard, fine-grained lava. When heavy rains fell, little grooves carried the drops of water to these holes and they became small cisterns. Here, the thirsty messengers running from one priestly clan to another 
where the travelers or worshippers coming to the sacred place could almost always find a few drops of water to quench their thirst. Usually, these water holes were covered with a large flat stone under which the water ran into the cistern. To this day, these small water places border the path across the Pahoho lava field, which lies adjacent to the broken A'a lava upon which the Wahaulehayu is built. Many of them are still covered as in the days of the long ago. It is not strange that legends have developed through the mists of the centuries around this rude old temple. Wahaula was a taboo temple of the very highest rank. The native chants said, Nokeya, Heyu, Oya, Kekapu, Enaena. Concerning this Heyu is the burning taboo. Enaena means burning with a red-hot rage. The Heyu was so thoroughly taboo, or kapu, that the smoke of its fires falling upon any of the people, or even upon any one of the chiefs, was sufficient cause for punishment by death, with the body as a sacrifice to the gods of the temple. These gods were of the very highest rank among the Hawaiian deities. Certain days were tabu to Lono, or Rongo, as he was known in other island groups of the Pacific Ocean. Other days belonged to Ku, who was also worshipped from New Zealand to Tahiti. At other times, Kane, known as Tane, by many Polynesians, was held supreme. Then again, Kanaloa, or Tanaroa, sometimes worshipped in Samoa and other island groups as the greatest of all their gods, had his days especially set apart for sacrifice and chant. The Mu, or body catcher, of this Heyu, with his assistants, seemed to have been continuously on the watch for human victims, and woe to the unfortunate man who carelessly or ignorantly walked where the wind blew the smoke from the temple fires. No one dared rescue him from the hands of the hunter of men. For then the wrath of all the gods was sure to follow him all the days of his life. The people of the districts around Wahaula always watched the course of the winds with great anxiety, carefully noting the direction taken by the smoke. This smoke was the shadow cast by the deity worshipped and was far more sacred than the shadow of the highest chief or king in all the islands. It was always sufficient cause for death if a common man allowed his shadow to fall upon any taboo chief, i.e., a chief of especially high rank, but in this burning taboo, if any man permitted the smoke or shadow of the god who was being worshipped in this temple to come near to him or overshadow him, it was a mark of such great disrespect that the god was supposed to be Inayana, a red-hot with rage. Many ages ago, a young chief, who we shall know by the name Kahele, determined to take an especial journey around the island, visiting all the noted and sacred places and becoming acquainted with Ali, or chief, of the other districts. He passed from place to place, taking part with the chiefs who entertained him sometimes in the use of papahi or surfboard, riding the white-capped surf as it majestically swept shoreward, sometimes spending night after night in the innumerable gambling contests which passed under the name Pili Waiwai, and sometimes riding the narrow sled or holua with which Hawaiian chiefs raced down the steep grass lanes. Then again, with a deep sense of the solemnity of sacred things, he visited the most noted of the heyus and made contributions to the offerings before the gods. Thus the days passed, and the slow journey was very pleasant to Kahele. In time, he came to Puna, the district in which was located the temple Wahaula. But alas, in the midst of the many stories of the past, which he had heard, and the many pleasures he had enjoyed while on his journey, Kahele forgot the peculiar power of the taboo of the smoke of Wahaula. The fierce winds of the south were blowing and changing from point to point. The young man saw the sacred grove and the edge of which the temple walls could be discerned. 
Thin wreaths of smoke were tossed here and there from the temple fires. Kahele hastened toward the temple. The Mu was watching his coming and joyfully marking him as a victim. The altars of the gods were desolate, and if but a particle of smoke fell upon the young man, no one could keep him from the hands of the executioner. The perilous moment came. The warm breath of one of the fires touched the young chief's cheek. Soon a blow from the club of the Mu laid him senseless on the rough stones of the outer court of the temple. The smoke of the wrath of the gods had fallen upon him, and it was well that he should lie as a sacrifice upon their altars. Soon, the body with the life still in it was thrown across the sacrificial stone. Sharp knives made from the strong wood on the bamboo let his lifeblood flow down from the depressions across the face of the stone. Quickly, the body was dismembered and offered as a sacrifice. For some reason, the priests, after the flesh had decayed, set apart the bones for some special purpose. The legends imply that the bones were to be treated dishonorably. It may have been that the bones were folded together in the shape known as oni'ipili, or grasshopper bones, i.e., folded and laid away for purposes of incantation. Such bundles of bones were put through a process of prayers and charms until at last it was thought that a new spirit was created which dwelt in that bundle and gave the possessor a peculiar power in deeds of witchcraft. The spirit of Kahele rebelled against his disposition of all that remained in his body. He wanted to be back in his native district, that he might enjoy the pleasures of the underworld with his own chosen companions. Restlessly, the spirit haunted the dark corners of the temple, watching the priests as they handled his bones. Helplessly, the ghost fumed and fretted against its condition. It did all that a disembodied spirit could do to attract the attention of the priests. At last, the spirit fled by night from this place of torment to the home which he had so joyfully left a short time before. Kahele's father was a high chief of Kau. Surrounded by retainers, he passed his days in quietness and peace, waiting for the return of his son. One night, a strange dream came to him. He heard a voice calling from the mysterious confines of the spirit land. As he listened, a spirit form stood by his side. The ghost was that of his son, Kahele. By means of the dream, the ghost revealed to the father that he had been put to death and that his bones were in great danger of dishonorable treatment. The father awoke, benumbed with fear, realizing that his son was calling upon him for immediate help. At once he left his people and journeyed from place to place secretly, not knowing where or when Kahele had died, but fully sure that the spirit of his vision was that of his son. It was not difficult to trace the young man. He had left his footprints openly all along the way. There was nothing of shame or dishonor, and the father's heart filled with pride as he hastened on. From time to time, however, he heard the spirit voice calling him to save the bones of the body of his dead son. At last he felt that his journey was nearly done. He had followed the footsteps of Kahele almost entirely around the island and had come to Puna, the last district before his own land of Kau, would welcome his return. The spirit voice could be heard now in the dream which nightly came to him. Warnings and directions were frequently given. Then the chief came to the lava fields of Wahaula and lay down to rest. The ghost came to him again in a dream, telling him that great personal danger was nearly at hand. The chief was a very strong man, excelling in athletic and brave deeds, but in obedience to the spirit voice, he rose early in the morning, secured oily nuts from a kukui tree, beat out the oil, and anointed himself thoroughly. Walking along carelessly, as if to avoid suspicion, he drew near to the lands of the temple Wahaula. Soon a man came out to meet him. This man was an Olohe, a beardless man belonging to a lawless robber clan which infested the district. 
possibly assisting the manhunters of the temple and securing victims for the temple altars. This Olohe was very strong and self-confident, and thought he would have but little difficulty in destroying this stranger who journeyed along through Puna. Almost all day, the battle raged between the two men. Back and forth, they forced each other over the lava beds. The chief's well-oiled body was very difficult for the Olohe to grasp. Bruised and bleeding from repeated falls on the rough lava, both of the combatants were becoming very weary. Then the chief made a new attack, forcing the Olohe into a narrow place from which there was no escape, and at last seizing him, breaking his bones, and then killing him. As the shadows of night rested over the temple and its sacred grave, the chief crept closer to the dreaded taboo walls. Concealing himself, he waited for the ghost to reveal to him the best plan for action. The ghost came, but was compelled to bid the father wait patiently for a fit time when the secret place in which the bones were hidden could be safely visited. For several days and nights, the chief hid himself near the temple. He secretly uttered the prayers and incantations needed to secure the protections of his family gods. One night, the darkness was very great, and the priests and watchmen of the temple felt sure that no one would attempt to enter the sacred precincts. Deep sleep rested upon all the temple dwellers. Then the ghost of Kahele hastened to the place where the father was sleeping and aroused him for the dangerous task before him. As the father arose, he saw this ghost outlined in the darkness, beckoning him to follow. Step by step, he felt his way cautiously over the rough path and along the temple walls until he saw the ghost standing near a great rock pointing at a part of the wall. The father seized a stone which seemed to be the one most directly in line of the ghost pointing. To his surprise, it very easily was removed from the wall. Back of it was a hollow place in which lay a bundle of folded bones. The ghost urged the chief to take these bones and depart quickly. The father obeyed and followed the spirit guide until safely away from the temple of the burning wrath of the gods. He carried the bones to Kau and placed them in his own secret family burial cave. The ghost of Wahaula went down to the spirit world in great joy. Death had come. The life of the young chief had been taken for temple service, and yet there had at last been nothing dishonorable connected with the destruction of the body and the passing away of the spirit. End of The Ghosts of Wahaula Temple by William Drake Westervelt Wow. That was a lesson in architecture and then in... <laughs> Dismemberment. <laughs> Dismemberment. Sacrifice. Human sacrifice. Yeah. Ancient gods. I mean, ghost story kind of thrown in there. What? What? What happened? This is what audio, audio vox does. Libra Sometimes vox. it's like LibriVox, audio vox, audio, internet audio. Um, sometimes they're just like, okay, here's your story. Sometimes they're like, here's your history. Sometimes they're like, here's a witchcraft spell. Yeah. What? What happened here? I don't... Whatever. It's interesting. It's always interesting, so... I do think it was, uh, you know, those oily nuts could have come, would have come in handy for, uh, for Robin Hood when he wanted to stain his face to get past the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, <laughs> Mm. Ah, the old dye your face with nuts uh, trick. I'm going to dye your face with nut walnuts this weekend. <laughs> Probably gonna be an improvement. Be it's going to be great for your skin. Oh, yeah. I'm then sure. I'm going to cut your hair for fun. 
Oh my god. It'll happen. I'm gonna cut my, my hair. hair for fun. My hair is stupid, Lord. We've got the scissors. We've got nowhere to go. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's I. Yep. We had we ten, had uncles who minutes. used to do that. Grandparents. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Older relatives who didn't like talking to children. Um. Wish well, these children would go away. We have Pepperidge Farms. <laughs> Pepperidge Farms remembers. <laughs> So, would you like one one uh, story that's about ten minutes, or two stories that are about five minutes? Since we have forty seven minutes, uh, or we're at eight forty seven. Two stories that are five minutes. Go. All right, German, uh, the Germanic tale of the Gnome's Road. Yes, the Gnome's Road and the Crystal Palace and other legends by Mary H. Frary and Charles Maurice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gnome's Road On the high hill above the Rhine still stand the ruins of an old castle. Here, Kuno von Sein once lived. Kuno was a very proud young man, for he was a member of a very noble family. He had fallen in love with the beautiful daughter of the surly old lord of Falkenstein. At last, he succeeded in winning the love of the maiden, but of her father he had great fear. After many months of hoping and fearing, he decided to go to the old lord and ask for his daughter's hand. One beautiful morning, he set out on his mission to the castle of Falkenstein. The castle was perched far up on the heights that rose above a small river. It was a long journey, and he had almost lost his courage when he reached the place. However, he went at once into the presence of the Lord of Falkenstein and boldly made known his wish. The grim old lord looked at him long and closely. Then in tones that were terrible to poor Kuno spoke. I will, he said. Consider the matter if you will promise to do one thing for me. Without waiting to find out what he was to do, Kuno eagerly consented. Then, said the Lord of Falkenstein, you may wed my daughter on condition that you build a convenient road over the jagged rock to the village. You are to ride up that road on your war horse before sunrise tomorrow morning. Poor Kuno was speechless. Nothing was to be said, for he knew how impossible was the task. Many months of hard labor would scarcely accomplish the great work. Sadly, he made his way down the rocks again. He had not been able to catch even a glimpse of the fair Armingrad, his beloved. So he sat down upon a rock in the valley and began to reproach himself for his stupidity. Suddenly, he was aroused from his thoughts by a small voice calling to him. Kuno, Kuno von Sein, it said. He looked up, and there before him stood the king of the gnomes. Despair not, said the kindly little man. Myself and my subjects will gladly help so good a knight. So away to the inn where you left your steed. Before sunrise tomorrow morning the road shall be ready. 
At this, the king of the gnomes waved his hand. A great mist rose and covered the hill and the valley with its dense vapor. Thousands of dwarf-like creatures now sprang out of the ground on all sides. They began using axes, hammers, and spades with great goodwill. All night long, Kuno von Sein heard the crashing of great forest trees and the breaking of stones. Now and then he heard a loud rumble like thunder. There was a continual clatter and crashing throughout the whole night. At dawn, he came from his room and was greeted by the innkeeper. A great storm must have raged over the valley last night, said the latter. I was kept awake all night by the noise. Kuno did not pause to listen to the man's tales, but loudly called for his horse. He mounted and rode rapidly away to the foot of the mountain. Far above him loomed the castle of Valkenstein. How Kuno's heart leaped with joy. There indeed was a road leading up to the castle. True to his promise, the king of the gnomes had built a broad, convenient road through the forest and over the rocks. Kuno galloped boldly up, exchanging smiles with the kindly dwarfs, who peered at him from behind every rock and tree. From the rampart of the castle stepped the beautiful Armingrad. Kuno dashed over the arched bridge the dwarfs were just finishing and greeted her gaily. The dwarfs raised a glad shout of Trump. The knight of Vulcanstein was awakened by the shout. He looked out, and there, stretching far out from the castle, saw the newly built road. He thought he must still be dreaming, and rubbed his eyes again and again. When, however, he saw the beaming face of Armingrad and Kuno, he knew that he had been outwitted. So as the first sunbeam fell upon the castle, lighting up the gladdened heart and blushing cheeks of the maiden, Kuno claimed her as his bride. The lord of Falkenstein was proud to accept a man who could do such wonderful things as Kuno had accomplished during the night. End of the Gnome's Rope Read to you by Tariq Al-Yahya Falkenstein Under what circumstances did he claim this woman as his bride? It was the... He was just like, you're mine! Uh, yeah, uh, you know... When Is that like, you're it, you're it! Tag... Tag, you're it. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh man. Well, it was you know it had some it it went pretty doggone fast I gotta say, but yeah. um uh, you know again though my questions are what is a Falkenstein? Is it a Frankenstein made out of a bunch of different birds? Is it a Frankenstein with a beak or a flying Frankenstein? Yeah. Falkenstein. If you have just received or gotten an exciting. New idea from this podcast. That's all you needed to do. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein with wings. Adorable. Sure. I've got Fra wings. I've got some white wings. Frankenstein Remember? with a beak. Yeah. They're, they're printed out by a... What is it called? I, I can't think of it. Well, I've, got those, uh, uh, I've got those foam wings I haven't used yet. you got wings? You've got tons got, of wings. we got wings laying around. <laughs> wings laying around. Franken wings. Just, just get a Frankenstein Franken action figure. Frankenhawk. Just get a Frankenstein action figure and staple a couple of hot wings to his back. Yeah. <laughs> or kind of make a Frankenstein out of hot wings. <laughs> That's all you need in and life. And then call it a Falkenstein. <laughs> Falkenstein. That's awesome. Uh, See? Yeah. That's the 
Best idea recently. See? Um, but yeah, so we could um talk I have for six one minutes last or... I have one last uh one that I found the other day, a Korean one called the Sneezing Colossus that's six minutes. Okay, let's do it. So six here minutes. It is. The Sneezing Colossus of Korean Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lewis West. Mr. Kim, who lived at the foot of the mountains, was a lazy lout. He had a family to support, but he did not like steady work. He preferred to smoke his pipe as long as a yardstick and to wait for something to turn up. One day his wife, tired of trying to feed hungry children from empty dishes, gave her husband a good scolding and bade him be gone and get something for the household. This consisted of father, mother, and four little folks whose faces were not often washed, besides a little dog. This puppy, when danger was near, always ran into the house through a little square hole cut in the door, and when safely within, barked lustily. So Mr. Kim went out to the mountains to find something, a root of ginseng, a nugget of gold, or some precious stone perhaps if he were lucky. If not, some berries, wild grapes, or pears might do. Meanwhile at home, his wife pounded the grain that was left in the larder for the children's dinner. Mr. Kim rambled over the rocks a long time without seeing anything worth carrying away. When it was about noon, he came to one of the mighty Muryaks, or colossal stone Buddhas, cut out of the solid mountain. It rose in the air many yards high. Ages ago, in the days of Buddhism, when monasteries covered the land and Buddhist friars and nuns chanted Sanskrit hymns to the praise of Lord Buddha, devout men, laboring many months, chiseled this towering colossus into human form. Its nose stood out three feet. Its mouth was four feet wide. On its flat head was a cap made of a slab of granite and shaped like a student's mortarboard in which ten men could stand without crowding one another. Long gone and forgotten were the monks, and the monastery had fallen to ruins. The forest had grown up around the great stone image until it was nearly hidden by the tall trees surrounding it. In front, from the ground up, the wild grapevines had gripped the stone with their tendrils and spread their matted branches and greenery until they nearly covered the image up to its neck. But out of a crevice in the head of the figure grew a pear tree, sprung from a seed dropped long ago by the great-grandfather of one of the birds singing and chirping nearby. And, oh joy, at the end of the outer branch was growing a ripe, luscious pear nearly as big as a man's head. What a prize! It would, when cut up, make a dessert for the whole family. Happy Kim! He blessed his lucky star. Seizing hold of the bushes and wild grapevines, by dint of great effort, Mr. Kim climbed upward and got as far as the chin of the great stone face. Above him protruded the big nose, the nostrils of which gaped like caverns. Yet although he was standing with his foot on the stone lips and holding on to the nose, despite all his exertions, he could go no further up the granite face. 
He was at his wit's end. Far above him hung the delicious-looking pear as if to tantalize him. A gentle breeze was swaying the fruit to and fro, and it seemed to say, Take me if you can. But the nose, being polished, was slippery, and the ears were too smooth to climb. What could he take hold of? Surely to shin up any further was impossible. Must he give up the pear? A bright thought entered his head. He would crawl up into the right nostril and hope for an exit to the top. So, thinking he might find his way, he began like an insect to enter the hole, and soon the man Kim disappeared from sight, as with hands and feet he climbed into the darkness. Wasn't it dangerous to tickle the nostrils of the great stone man in this way? But whatever Kim may have thought, he kept on, determined to get that pair, come what might. Suddenly, a blast loud enough to rend the mountain was heard. Hush! Ho! Had an earthquake or tempest taken place? Was this rolling thunder? No, the Colossus had sneezed. Thus, the stone man got rid of the intruder. The first thing Mr. Kim knew, he was flying through the air, and he tumbled upon the bushes. His wits were gone. He knew nothing. This was about one o'clock in the afternoon. Mr. Kim lay asleep or unconscious till near sundown. Then he woke up and realized what had happened. There was the stone nose beetling over him, far up toward the sky. But in sneezing so hard, the Colossus had shaken its head also, and the big pear had dropped off. Kim found it lying by his side, and picking it up, went on his way rejoicing. At home, the little dog looking through the square hole saw him, barked welcome, and a right merry supper they had over the big pear cut into slices as Mr. Kim told the story of his adventures. End of The Sneezing Colossus Recording by <laughs> Lewis West Well, that was a yes, good wacky really. one to end on. Yeah, that Koreans is wacky. Koreans have a, have a good sense of humor. I love it. So pears and sneezes and yeah climbing so, up into nostrils. he tickled his nose he tickled his nose and he sneezed about so yep it's pretty good Cute. uh yeah that, that's all right so what have we learned tonight <laughs> so much <laughs> <laughs> we started out with the boy whose name was trouble and the story of rihanna and uh, how people will accuse you of eating your child if it disappears, if someone sure. else steals it. Well, I'm I'm assuming that Jack Pumpkinhead ate Tip at this point. Oh, we forgot the second chapter. Or not the second, but number oh, eight. Oh, we only did one. Okay. Yeah. Well, you got wow. an extra one for next week then. That's fine. So. Yeah, I'm ready with next week. Yeah. Um, we learned about the Green News Report, Robin Hood, the Fairy Frog. The yeah. ghost of, I don't have it in front of me, uh, the Gnome's Road and Sneezing Colossus. Yeah. We learned a lot of things. Definitely. And uh, yeah, yeah, all kinds of good stuff. Um, but yeah, thanks for uh, uh, having me back on. And uh, everybody check out uh, It Came From Cleveland yeah. tomorrow. Friday, 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 yeah. Friday. we got a big show tomorrow Fun talking stuff. about all kinds of great stuff. Um you gonna have a heavy focus on Eddie Eddie Albert. Uh, we're gonna talk about. Uh, uh, sadly, I was looking up uh, information about uh, Tweaky the other day from Buck Rogers mm. because I just learned 
a while ago Mandy, Mandy. that uh, there was a, a fill uh, there was a fill in actor. Um, Mandy, Mandy. Uh, and but the actor uh, Felix Silla just passed away. Um, it's uh, it's sad. I was just doing research and he passed away on the sixteenth. It, it's crazy. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we're gonna be talking about Eddie Albert. Uh, Michelle will be talking about some of his uh, uh, TV stuff, and I'll be talking about his activism. And Joel, be, Joel has some good stories from Bob Weatherbacks related to. Uh, Green a- or yeah, Green Acres and stuff like that. And Miles will be talking about some online gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's gonna be good. And of course, the Twilight Zone review, the Twilight Zone um, uh, from this week got preempted sixty-one years ago. So we're gonna do the season one, episode one tomorrow. Oh, uh, okay. where is everybody? But anyway, Wait. I'll shut up and let you do your thing and uh, end the show. Well, you asked me what I learned, and I've learned a lot of things, but the one of the most important thing I've learned is that Kiddo will sink his teeth into anything just to see if he can eat it. And I appreciate that about him. Uh, brave check boy. out the show art um, made by Foxfire. See, see y'all tomorrow. And, um, you know, be kind to the fairy princes in your life. And, uh, be kind to uh, everyone because why not? Um, yeah. Ha- happy Earth Day. But I hope Happy Earth Day. Be kind to the Earth. Talk to you later. Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights. It's a blast bringing this stuff to you. Radioforhumans.com.